And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? Doing well. Fixing up parts of the house. Yep. Listening to our upstairs neighbors stomp around and listen to what sounds like Polish techno. Amazing. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we are doing what needs to be done in preparation for our move. We've got all of our paperback and hardcover books packed. Those Uh, books. The comics have yet to be tackled. Yes, yes. The comics aren't packed and the, like, coffee table books are not packed. But the hardcovers and paperbacks and and your comic books uh, have so far (laughs) taken up 24 bankers' boxes. And I expect we'll need another 24 just for the books. Yeah. Your comic collection is significantly larger than mine. Fair, 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 fair. We've still got, like, three weeks to go. So, we're doing all right. We're on the ball. That's right. (laughs) But, you know, Ben, I'm kind of ready to take a vacation. Oh, yeah. Let's go somewhere. Well, but, Sarah, what about COVID? Where we're going... There is no COVID. (laughs) That's because we're going to Mexico in 1935. Yes. The 1935 part is really the key part of the avoidance of COVID here. Yes. Yes. So we're back in 1935 to take a look at a movie that um, falls at the tail end of the first wave of Mexican horror films. Uh, And we've covered three Mexican films in the past from the 1930s. This comes after those. Today's movie is El Misterio del Rostro Palado from 1935, written, directed, and edited by Juan Bastillo Oro. Translates to Mystery of the Pale or Ghostly Face. Yes. So, as I just said, uh, we've looked at a few Mexican films before. Yeah. Um, but my memory is notoriously Swiss cheese-esque and requires <laughs> filling in. So why don't you... Help me out here, Sarah. What did we? What have we already seen? Sure. Let me fill your brain holes with some knowledge. All right. Just as I've been filling up the picture holes with putty. <laughs> so first was La Llorona in 1933. That was episode 41B, if anyone wants to take a listen to that. It's currently ranked at number 133, and it was directed by Ramon Peon. So La Llorona comes from the myth of the weeping woman. Um, the myth goes that Maria, that Maria's husband leaves her for a younger woman, so she drowns her children in revenge, but then she drowns herself after seeing what she's done. She can't continue into the afterlife for what she's done, so she has to go and find her children's souls in rivers and lakes, etc., before she can actually move on. Now, the myth kind of takes on the spooky tone, the legend being that she will kidnap current, like, alive children, (laughs) not her children, drown them, and then pass those souls off as like, yeah, this was my my son, Juan. Uh, Let me into the afterlife now, please. Yeah, it's, it's, she's sort of like a boogeyman-esque 
figure in the sense of like boogeyman and also banshee. Yeah, like behave or La Llorona will come get you. Yeah, don't wander out at night. La Llorona's out there. Don't go wandering by the riverbanks. Listen to your mother. Um, if you hear her weeping, you've now been targeted and uh, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> have, a, have a good swim, I guess. Um, so that's kind of the myth around her. The next film we saw was El Fantasma del Convento from 1934, Phantom of the Convent. Um, that's episode 46B, if you want to take a listen, and it's currently ranked at number 52. Pretty good. So pretty dang good. Uh, that was directed by Fernando de Fuentes. Mm-hmm. El Fantasma del Convento came out in June of 1934 and was basically a follow-up to the previous film and has a lot of kind of Aztec and Catholic influences. And I'll go a bit more into the details about the film industry and the behind-the-scenes stuff about these films in a minute. Now, both La Llorona and El Fantasma del Convento were big hits, so it made sense for them to continue that string of hits with Dos Monjes in 1934, coming out in November. So, De Fuentes was a co-writer of La Llorona, and then he went on to direct El Fantasma. Um, one of the co-writers of El Fantasma became the director for Dos Monjes, and that is Juan Bustillo Oro. Um, for Dos Monjes, he would write and direct, um, and kind of continues those Catholic themes and kind of expressionist visuals from El Fantasma. Mm-hmm. Now, Dos Monjes, if you want to listen to the episode, it's episode 47B, but we ultimately decided it was not horror, so it is not ranked. Yeah. It's more of a drama, and the climax has these expressionist visuals and spooky masks, but that's not enough for it to be considered horror, even for this very early horror film, because the emphasis of the film was consistently on the drama between these two monks. Yeah. Now, Ben, you kind of hinted at this already, but these three films and this fourth one that we're watching today kind of comprise what's known as Mexico's golden age of horror, which is really interesting because uh, Mexican film was in its early stages in 1930-1931, and during that time in like the golden age of their film industry, um, the Mexican Maximoto government encouraged films to be produced around and based on authentic Mexican culture. Sure. Both as a means of, you know, take inspiration from our own cultural roots for this, like, homegrown film industry, but also to really differentiate themselves from Hollywood. Mm-hmm. You see that in La Llorona, especially, being based off of this myth of the weeping woman. The film itself follows how the aristocracy or colonizers of Mexico have been haunted by a weeping woman through the ages. And in the current day family that the film is set around, um, they are the haunting is actually fake um, and is being perpetrated by Aztec servants to get revenge on this aristocratic family. Yeah, the like interaction between like the Spanish... And the indigenous peoples of Mexico is like a key theme of that whole movie. Yeah, so you really see the creators of La Llorona tapping into that uh, 
I don't know if it was full policy, but that suggested policy from sure. the government. Um, and that continues into El Fantasma del Convento, especially as the film's writers were inspired for the film by seeing Aztec mummies. Right, And they yes. shot in a real uh, monastery. And there's definitely some Gothic influences. So you see, again, like kind of a little bit of external influences, the Gothic influence, expressionist influence. What was interesting is El Fantasma del Convento is seen as a standout classic in the horror golden age. And that would definitely ring true with at least the three films we've seen as of now. Yeah, in terms of our rankings, anyway. Yeah. And it came out in June 1934. And I emphasize that it came out in June because Dos Monjes came out in November. And at the time, it was criticized for being horror, for seeming out of date. And that was right when there was that global backlash yes, to horror. Yes, that's right. Um, so we saw that in America. We saw that in Germany, like all over the world. Everyone's like saying, no, no more horror. And in Mexico, that happened over a period of a couple months. June, you have Del Convento, super celebrated, very successful. November, you have Dos Monjes, um, considered horror for the time, and uh, did not do as well. Right. But it gave the director and writer, Juan Bastillo Oro, another set of experiences for him to add to his resume uh, to become the father of Mexican horror. That's right. So, just to recap who he is, um, again, we explained this in the episode on Dos Manas, but um, I'm going to cover it here, because he is the director, and you said writer and editor? That's right. Of this film? Yeah. He was born in 1904. Dos Manas was his fifth credit as a writer and his third as a director. Over the course of his life, he would create and be involved in over 60 films, and while he would work in pretty much all genres, he continued that interest in horror, coming back to the genre in the 50s especially, mm -hmm. which I suspect is when he really earned that title of Father of Mexican Horror, given that the last film of his that we saw, we determined it was not horror. I'm very interested to see what this film has in store. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think of, like, this chain... Of people, I guess, from La Llorona, where you have uh, Ramon Perron uh, directing and Fernando de Fuentes writing. And then Fernando de Fuentes directs El Fantasma del Convento, and you have Juan Bastillo Oro as a writer. And then Juan Bastillo Oro is directing and writing Dos Monjes, and then this film, which, as I mentioned, he edits as well. That's because El Misterio del Rostro Palido was a very low-budget movie. Um, it was produced by a company that made this and one other movie. Oh, no. The producers of this film were first-time movie makers. Um, it, uh, yeah, was very, very indie, I guess you could say. I suppose that's not super surprising, given that, as I've noted, there's a pushback against horror. Yes. So... You know, whatever studios that exist in Mexico, they're probably not going to be interested in doing horror. They're want to be wanting to move on to whatever the next trend is. Um, so Oro probably had to go find these indie, yes. indie guys. Yeah, especially with 
Dos Manes not being a success, right? Yeah. Might have been different if that film had been successful. Um, his intent with this film was twofold. One was to try and renew interest in the horror genre in Mexico, as well as move the genre away from uh, what he considered to be, like, its infant beginnings. Uh, he wanted to move away from, like, old dark houses and stuff like that and tell, like, different kinds of stories within the genre. Interesting. Yeah, I guess you could say that Dos has could be... A bit of an old dark house. Same with El Fantasma, right? Like, just oh, being in that, like, haunted convent kind of, like, setting, right? Yeah. Haunted monastery. It's really cool that he's already thinking about this in 35, mm-hmm. because the states don't really fully move away from that until the end of the 40s. Yeah. Uh, the other goal that he had here was to create a story that would contrast modern Mexico with the country's, quote, forgotten indigenous tribes, unquote. Awesome. So, yet again, we're seeing those, like, uniquely Mexican themes. Oro also wished to further develop the expressionist aesthetics that he had explored in Dos Monjes, encouraging production designer Carlos Toussaint to add art deco elements uh, to the production design as well. Toussaint, who had worked on Dos Monjes, uh, said that he wanted to achieve a contrast between the sets and the plots that would heighten the anguish of the story. Cool. Also returning from Dos Monjes is that film's cinematographer, Agustin Jimenez. For the film's script, Oro was inspired by traditional Gothic literature, particularly the works of Gaston LaRue, as Oro wished to portray a romantic ghost and explore the darkness of the soul. To give the movie its sort of horror bona fides, uh, Oro cast Carlos Villarreal as the film's lead role. Didn't he play Spanish Dracula? That is correct. Nice. Yeah. El Misterio del Rostro Palado was released on October 5th, 1935. However, uh, the producers, as I mentioned, not a lot of money, first-time movie makers, so they had no money for publicity for the movie, and there was no money for a premiere, And the film showed in only 11 theaters. Oh, no. It received mixed reviews from critics. Uh, The sets were praised for their creativity and look. However, the filmmaking was considered too theatrical in style. And the depiction of indigenous peoples was criticized. Hmm. Okay. I I still don't know what we're going to get, but I'm even more intrigued. Well... The result of the film's tepid, less-than-tepid reception was that it would be the last horror film released in Mexico until 1950. Okay. When Oro strikes again. Correct. Yes. (laughs) So, one of the reasons it's taken us a long time to look at this movie is um, it's always kind of a challenge to find copies of these older Mexican films. The copy we're going to be watching today is on YouTube, and it is extremely less than ideal for a variety of reasons. Um, the like actual video quality is extremely subpar. I I I'm not sure if it's like from off of like a TV showing of this movie or something, but it has like watermarks of like the title is at the bottom of the the movie for the whole movie, and like there's another thing like at the top that's like the name of 
like a channel or something. It might just be the YouTube channel, in fact. But that text is over the movie the entire time. Uh, and then, as we have had to do at times in the past, we will be watching this with automatic Spanish subtitles auto-translated into English okay. through the magic of Google. So it's a very much less than ideal viewing experience, and I waited for a long time to try and see if like, I could get something better, and I have not been able to, uh, but this is a movie we, we need to watch so that we can engage with like 1950s Mexican horror. Okay. So it is going to be on the Scream Scene playlist, um, but if something better comes up, I will replace it with a better copy in the future. Okay. Well, even despite, you know, it's tepid premiere, uh, this version we're watching, I am still pretty excited. If anyone would like to watch along, you can find our YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Now, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss El Misterio del Rostro Pelido from 1935, directed by Juan Bastillo Oro. See you on the other side, everybody. back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching El Misterio del Rostro Pallido, or The Mystery of the Pale Face, from 1935, directed by Juan Vistillo Oro. Ben, what did you think of this? I think I enjoyed it as much as I was capable of. Yeah, given the copy that we had? Yeah, given the, like... Viewing experience? Yeah, the really subpar copy combined with the automated Spanish subtitles being auto-translated into English. Yep. Yeah. I would agree. Um, I think it was fairly effective. I think in terms of what it was, of the story it was trying to tell. There were parts where I wanted it to be more. That being said, I do think it is a natural progression from the other horror movies we've watched in this early Mexican horror trend. Sure, yeah. yeah. It There were moments that really reminded me of Das Monjes, um, as well as with La Llorona. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, uh, it's not an outlier in that sense. I do think it shows a greater amount of Hollywood influence yeah. than any of the three Mexican horror films we've taken a look at so far. I would agree. Yeah. How about you tell us about the film, Ben? For sure. Um, I think... Giving the plot outline will definitely make those Hollywood comparisons very clear. Um, So, Carlos Villarreal, our lead actor, plays Dr. Forti. And Dr. Forti is doing research to try and cure a strange and mysterious disease. And he sucks at it. Uh, (laughs) All of his experiments, all of his procedures, everything that he is doing keeps leading to his patients dying. He is assisted in this work by his son, Pablo, who wanted to be a musician and play the violin, but uh, sort of gave that up to help his dad with his work, because uh, his dad's getting on in years and needs, like, a, a young assistant. Um, I feel like someone should have taken Dr. Forty to the side and said, you know, I know the saying is, 
if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. But maybe after the fifth patient died, maybe stop, maybe let someone else give it a shot. Yeah, so 11 patients have died so far. And uh, this has been very disturbing for the other people who live in Dr. Forti's house. Because the doctor and his son are doing their operations in the house. So, like, (laughs) you have to hear the moaning of these people dying. Uh, The other people who live in the house are Donna Ingracia and her niece, Angelica. Angelica's father died when she was, like, five or something. And so Dr. Forti took her in. And she's been living with them, with her aunt, ever since. Angelica and Pablo are in love, and they are engaged to be married. Uh, but the wedding, you know, hasn't happened yet because Pablo is very busy uh, helping his dad with failing to cure patients. Yeah. So. Which, I mean, like, it would be admirable to keep pushing off the wedding and stuff to cure people and heal people. If you were succeeding. Right. So, Donna Ingracia has had enough of listening to the moaning of dying people. And she's she's basically, like, had it up to here. So when two new people arrive at the house, she is sort of desperate to try and convince them to talk the doctor out of doing any more experiments. These two new people are Dr. Forti's old friend, Dr. Julio Montes, and his son, Luis. The reason Dr. Forti has called them here is because Dr. Forti intends on traveling with Pablo into the wilderness to try and find what he's looking for for his research out there. Like some kind of new ingredient or treatment method or something. Yeah. He knows he needs to do research and he's going to the jungle to do it. Yeah. And... Uh, Dr. Montez is very skeptical of the idea of taking Pablo with him. And he's very concerned that Dr. Forti is just kind of like ignoring what his son's wishes are in favor of just making his son work for him and like squandering his son's youth like on this, you know, mad quest. Yeah. So uh, Dr. Forti gets very upset at this suggestion and says to Pablo like, hey, am I doing this against your will? And Pablo's like, nope, like... I'm I'm going to help you, Dad. Like, this is what we're doing. And everyone's like, uh-huh, okay, sure. Pablo and, and Angelica have a tearful, you know, romantic farewell. Pablo has, as I mentioned, given up music, but he still plays from time to time. He and Angelica have a duet where he plays violin and she plays piano uh, of a particular song that's like their song. And uh, so they play it one last time before... Uh, Forti and Pablo leave. Dr. Forti has um, called Dr. Montez here so that he can transfer ownership, essentially, of his estate over to Dr. Montez. So Montez can, like, manage the estate while Forti is gone. Uh, And Pablo does something similar in that he talks to Luis and says, hey, I really love Angelica, but if I don't come back you should marry her so that she is not all alone. So the doctor and his son head off into the jungle, leaving these folks behind at the house. When the two of them get to the wilderness, the jungle, um, they stay a night at, like, an indigenous village. Mm -hmm. And basically they get the, like, 
Mexican equivalent of, you know, that scene in all the Dracula movies where the Romanians tell you not to go to Dracula's castle and that, like, they'll take you no further than Borgel Pass. Because Dr. Forti and Pablo are like, hey, we're trying to get to the Black Lake. And the uh, indigenous people are like, the the Black Lake? Like, you mean the land of the pale faces? The place where the dead walk amongst the living and the living walk amongst the dead? <laughs> No, we no. are not going to tell you the way. We are not going to take you there. And Dr. Forty's like, well, I'm very rich and I can pay you very well. They're like, we'll take you part of the way there, but we are not taking you all the way there. And so a native guide takes Forty and Pablo into the woods towards the Black Lake, the land of the pale faces where the living walk amongst the dead. They can just say Canada. <laughs> <laughs> He gets, like, halfway there, and he's like, cool, I'm not going any further. You guys have to find the rest of your way there. And Dr. Forty pulls a gun on him, and the guy's just like, yeah, no, and turns his horse around and rides away. And so uh, Forty and his son are like, all right, well, I guess we got to find our own way, and they ride their horses off into the woods. Eight years later, <laughs> uh, Luis and Angelica have decided to get married. Uh, she, you know, spent a long time grieving over Pablo. Everyone has assumed that Pablo and Dr. Forti are dead. They did not come back. And, you know, she spent a lot of time grieving, but she's over it, and she's ready to move on, and she's going to marry Luis, and this makes her aunt, like, so happy, and everything's going so well. Then, one night, Angelica is trying to sleep, and she hears Pablo's violin ballad. And she's like, what the fuck? So she gets up, you know, goes to the window, and she calls her aunt in, and she's like, Auntie, Auntie, like, I heard Pablo playing music, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, no, like, you were just dreaming. Like, you're just upset. Like, go to bed. It's fine. And then the music starts up again. And Angelica's like, no, there it is. Don't you hear it out in the backyard? And her aunt is like, no, that that's just the wind whistling through the trees. Go back to sleep. But Angelica's very upset about this, you know, over the next few days, uh, she can't get her mind off it. She keeps hearing the music. So she kind of is driven one day to go to the Forti estate where they are no longer living. Uh, and it seems like the estate's been kind of like abandoned. Yeah. She goes there, uh, I guess, you know, to see like, you know, is Pablo back? Is he alive? What's going on? And there's a big tall guy standing out in front. His name is Crescencio, and he says that he ha is the assistant, the servant, the, the footman, the number two of Dr. Forti, who has returned from his trip to the land of the Pale Faces, and that no one's allowed in the house. And Angelica is like, oh, okay, but what about Pablo, though? And Crescencio's like, I don't know, man. I don't know who Pablo is. I'm the only one who came back with him. You're not allowed in the house. Just at that moment, Justo, uh, Dr. Forti's old butler, shows up. Uh, and it turns out that Dr. Forti has asked Justo to come back and work for him again. Soon enough, Dr. Forti shows up at Angelica and her aunt's place and says, like, Hey, I'm back. You guys are invited to come back and live with me again, just like old times. I'm going to take care of you guys. Everything's cool. By the way, Pablo's dead. And so if you just come back... To the house, uh, you know, here's 
the house, here's your room, Angelica, like, it's been totally redecorated, everything's going to be the best for you guys, there's a room over there that has all of Pablo's stuff and our, like, medical instruments and stuff in it, don't ever go in there, uh, ever again, uh, it's forbidden, um, but, like, otherwise, yeah, things are going to be great, just like they were before, I'm so happy to be back. And then Helica's like, what about this weird window in my bedroom that's, uh, like a skylight looking over my bed. Yeah, and the doctor's like, oh yeah, we had your room totally redecorated, and the, the, the set decorator, I mean, renovator, uh, he was like, yeah, we're gonna put this window right above her, because, like, then she'll look up into it while she's sleeping, and it'll be, like, a window into her dreams. Dot, or dot, something. dot. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Forty's being a little weird, uh, yeah. since coming back. He definitely, like... He was always weird, but this is, like weirder. Yeah. Like, like he was, like, grumpy weird before, and now he's like, everything's going to be great. Yeah, he used to be irascible, now he's maniacal. Yeah. And Helica tries to have a conversation with him about, like, Pablo, and, like, what happened to Pablo, though? And he's like, yeah, Pablo died. He's dead, but... Don't worry about it. Uh, his soul is suffering, because he, he wasn't able to be with you. Uh, and so... Things get a little confused around here because of the subtitle translation, but I believe what starts to happen is Dr. Forty is slipping some drugs into Angelica's drinks and trying to basically convince her that she needs to marry the dead ghost of his son for his son's soul to be at rest. Yes. And the... Other thing that's kind of convincing Angelica of this is that she keeps hearing Pablo's music, and in that weird window, she keeps seeing a horrible, pale face at the window. Meanwhile, her aunt's trying to get to the bottom of this, and she's really disturbed about what's going on, and so is the butler. Uh, so they call for Dr. Montez to come and, like, kind of take a look at things and see what's going on, and maybe, hey, man, uh, what's going on here, man? So Dr. Montez shows up, starts looking around, and there is a mysterious, black-cloaked, pale-faced figure who goes around with a violin at night, playing violin music, and leaves and enters through the forbidden don't-go-into-Pablo's-room room. And this mysterious cloaked figure, like, the only part of him that's not covered up is the face. Like, the rest of it is, like, black cloth, like, everywhere, Right? And this is the horrible pale face that uh, Angelica has been seeing at the window and that Dr. Forti has been suggesting is the ghost of Pablo. One day, her aunt, like, follows Dr. Forti towards the Forbidden Room. And the door to the Forbidden Room opens and she faints. And the butler comes out and is like, what's going on? And the doctor's there examining her and the butler's examining her. And the doctor's like, yeah, she's dead. What can you do? Yep. And the butler's like, uh... Now, Dr. Forty doesn't tell Angelica that her aunt is dead. Indeed, she kind of disappears from the movie for a little bit here. Uh, but Dr. Montez is like, okay, I'm going to go see what's in that room. He catches a glimpse of the cloaked figure going into the room, and he's like, I'm going to follow him. So he follows the cloaked figure into the room, and then something happens. And he comes out of the room, into Husto's room, and dies. And Dr. Forty comes in and is like, ah, yeah, he's dead. 
Cardiac well, arrest. Cardiac arrest. What just, are you going to do? Just like the aunt. Uh, well, get rid of the body, will you, Husto? There's a good chap. And Husto's like, okay, this is something, this is bad. So he calls for Luis, you know, Angelica's uh, fiancé, maybe, uh, to come. And Husto, when Luis arrives, tells him, like, hey, so you can't stay in the house because they'll probably try to kill you. Uh, so stay in, like, the guest house and then, like, come into the house at midnight and I'll meet you and we'll try to figure out what's going on. And Luis is like, cool, got it. Meanwhile, Dr. Forti is drugging Angelica again. And he's like, hey, so, need you to marry the ghost of my dead son. Uh, I got a wedding dress over here set up for you. Uh, the ghost's gonna show up at midnight. And you're, you're gonna, gonna marry my dead son. And Angelica's like, no, no, I don't want to do this. I don't, this is bad. I don't, nope, this is weird and freaky and weird. And the doctor's like, you know what, just just do this for me, and then I'll let you and your aunt go. You can go back to whatever you were doing before, but just marry the ghost of my dead son for me at midnight tonight, please. And so she's like, okay, cool, I'll do it. And so she gets in the wedding dress and waits for the arrival of the ghost of Pablo. Meanwhile, the doctor and Crescencio go find Husto, and they're like, hey, Husto, you know too much. Specifically the thing about all the people dying here. <laughs> so we're going to tie you up in this other room over here. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. The cloaked figure in the black cape and the white mask shows up to talk to Angelica. And this figure refers... Everyone's been referring to this figure as death. Like she's going to marry death. So when he shows up, uh, Angelica does... Kind of the first thing you'd think of, which is that she takes his mask off. And right underneath that mask of a horrible pale face is an identical horrible pale face. And it's Pablo. And it turns out Pablo didn't die in the land of the pale faces, and he's not a ghost. He just got leprosy. And apparently the form of leprosy from the land of the pale faces is that you get really pale. And this is why it's called the land of the pale faces, because the people who live there have leprosy. Mm-hmm. And this is why the native peoples were like, yeah, that's the land where, like, the living and, the like, the dead walk amongst the living. Because, like, people have bad attitudes towards people with leprosy, and it's a really stigmatized thing. And basically the natives were trying to say, like, yeah, if you go there, you're going to get leprosy, and then you'll just be a dead man walking, essentially. Uh, I have no idea why they thought that, you know, the best way to convey this was to wrap it up in a bunch of spooky-sounding lingo, but there you have it. They're in a horror movie. Right. They know how to deliver things. Mm Mm-hmm. So Pablo has leprosy. Uh, Angelica freaks out, like uh, people tended to do with people with leprosy, and she's like, stay away from me, get away, and Pablo's like, no, no, see, we're going to get married, and I'm going to make love to you. And you're going to become all gross and leprosy like me. And then you'll have to stay with me. Right. Because you'll be disgusting and no one will want you. And then I'll be happy. And Angelica is not taking this very well. Meanwhile, Luis has shown up and he goes to rescue Justo. And then they try to go rescue Angelica in Pablo's room. But they are stopped by Dr. Forti and Crescencio. Crescencio is quickly dealt with by Luis having served next to no purpose in the movie. And Luis busts in to the room with Pablo and Angelica. And he's like, Pablo, you're alive! Meanwhile, Dr. Forti's like, well, Justo, you know too much. 
so I'm just going to have to stab you to death. And he stabs Justo. But on the ground, Justo sees the gun that Crescencio dropped when Luis took care of him. So he picks that up and he shoots the doctor with it. And then the doctor staggers into Pablo's room and dies in Pablo's arms. And Pablo's all sad about it and realizes that he doesn't belong among the living. And so he climbs up onto a cliff and jumps off it and kills himself, leaving Luis and Angelica the only people left alive and presumably free to get married. The end. Yeah. So the film itself is structured in two parts. First part, the beginning, ends with them going to the land of the pale faces. Second part, beginning with eight years later to, yeah. to the end. Um, and I feel like the first part is like influenced by the mad scientist movies. Yes. And the second half is influenced by gothic Frankenstein, a little bit of Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, absolutely. The movie, it's really um, reminiscent, honestly, of like a Hollywood Poverty Row movie. Yeah. Like that way of just kind of like, let's take some stuff that's been popular in other movies, toss it together, and then do it as cheaply as we can. I mean, the sets do look cool. Yeah, the sets are like this interesting mix of Art Deco and German Expressionism. Mm-hmm. Which, like, I know Art Deco kind of grows out of the German Expressionist style, but they somehow are more interlinked than an evolution in yeah. this movie. It's really cool. The costume for Pablo's pretty cool. I really like it. It's very, like, graphic design. Yes. Uh, so, so when the movie starts, during the credits, there's this heckin' scary pale face that shows up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, during, like, the title sequence. And that is not the pale face that the mask is. And that's the mask I wanted. It's also not the pale face that, like, Pablo is, either. Yeah. Like, like, I'm not joking, he's wearing, like, a full white face mask that then looks exactly like his face when he takes it off. Yeah, and it's, he doesn't look disfigured or anything. He just has pale skin. Yeah, and they've, they've, um, I don't know if it's supposed to be that he has no eyebrows, but he, he they've lightened his eyebrows to the color white. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, he's just white. And then you can't see his hair or anything because he's wearing this, like, head cowl, right? Yeah. But, like, yeah, it's kind of wild. Like, it, it really is like if they, if, like, <laughs> they pulled off, like, the Phantom of the Opera's mask and what was beneath it was just, like, this, like, white porcelain smooth bit of skin or something you'd be like what what yeah like even if you think of um we haven't watched it for the show but conrad veit in the man who laughs right has that very pale face but they've done something to make him look very scary whether it's the lipstick or eyeliner whatever or the maniacal smile Mm -hmm. um he looks terrifying Whereas Pablo's face here, he, he just looks like he had, like, an accident while baking a cake. You yeah. know, where the flour gets up in your face. To be fair, he is also very gaunt compared to how he looks at the start of the movie. Sure. Like, he's gaunt and pale. I, I don't really have a problem with, like, ooh, a gaunt, pale face is spooky. Um, it does give, like, some major, like, face-at-the-window vibes. Yeah. But what I found kind of ridiculous was just that, like, he's wearing a spooky mask face to cover his identical spooky pale face. Like, one of the other of those things should have been different, right? Yeah. Um, speaking, though, of the actor who plays Pablo, uh, Joaquin Busquets, 
was blind. He's blind? Yeah. So, I mean, pretty impressive performance, really. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I never would have guessed. Like, his eye lines match. Yeah, he's good. Yeah. Very impressed. He does a good performance. So, like, absolutely we're impressed. Pablo's probably the most, like... I guess, interesting character in the movie. I mean, Carlos Villarreal is really fun as Dr. Forty, but he's completely over the top in both halves, right? Yeah. Like, either version of Dr. Forty is very over the top. The rest of the cast is basically perfunctory. They're all just playing the, you know, I'm the young hero, I'm the young damsel. Um, there's also, like, too many characters. Yeah. Like, a lot of but them... But they all die. Yes, they're here to die, which is good. I do wonder what the thinking behind casting... Joaquin Busquets was like was it just that like he was very a very good actor who like now was blind and they were casting him did they think that casting a blind actor for Pablo would have some sort of effect or was it like well this is who we could get at you know in this amount of time with this amount of money like I don't know yeah it's odd but it's it's cool that like you just don't even notice it don't even know just to tack on one last thing about it, the influences that we're seeing from yeah. American horror is um, Angelica's white wedding dress. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's, like, some iconic shots of when she faints when she sees Pablo and he catches her. And, of course, he's all in black and she's all in white, so her wedding dress is quite s- striking with that c- contrast. Um, and it's just straight out of Universal. Yeah, major Vera West vibes. Like, yeah. they, they know that, you know... That this is the look. Yeah, you're supposed to put her in a white dress for the end of the movie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can really see those influences, like, being worn on the sleeve, that's for sure. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. No. It does make this movie different from the past ones, as Ben kind of said before, because the past Mexican horror films have been very steeped in Mexican culture, Mexican myth. Yeah. Whereas this is not. Yeah, which is, this... again, is fine, but it's just a, kind of a step away. Yeah, the stuff with the indigenous people here feels like it's being done just for flavor. Yeah. Like, because they're really just exactly filling that, like, Romanians in Dracula role, right? I mean, we see this, like, um, dance that they do at night that's, like, part of, like, oh, warding off the evil kind of thing. Um, and they're wearing some of these giant masks, some of which I recognized from the, the ending end of, of Das Manhez. Yes. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. But, yeah, it, it really feels like they're just kind of here for flavor. The story is pretty light and doesn't really, really make sense. sense. Like, even allowing for the bad subtitles, like, I don't understand... I understand Pablo, kind of. I don't really understand Dr. Forty. Like, the okay, here's, here's Dr. Forty. Mm-hmm. The movie doesn't do any of this work. Right. But he is a workaholic dad who is forcing his son into following in his footsteps, regardless of what his son actually wants. Mm-hmm. His son gets leprosy. Mm-hmm. Now... He can't go back and marry his girl. Now he can't go back and marry his girl. Dr. Forty feels terrible guilt. So that twists his mind that's like already like an overworked mind into this idea of like, well, you can't go back like this. They will 
hate you, everyone hates lepers, so let's say you're dead and we'll disguise you and we'll, you know, come up with this idea of, yeah, she'll marry your ghost, I guess. Yeah, it's like such a weird, elaborate plot where it's like, I guess the idea, because it's hard to know what his endgame was, but I guess the idea was that, like, she would marry Pablo's ghost, quote-unquote, and then, like, Dr. Forty would pop out from behind a potted plant and be like, Aha! You actually married him for real. You're married to him now. End of story. No take-backsies. We're Catholic. What? You're married. What priest is giving the ceremony? Yeah, it's... <laughs> like, they, they seem to be like, kind of missing get, something like, here. They, they must have gotten someone who... Maybe uh... that's what Crescentio's deal was, is he's a priest. <laughs> that's why he was here. Yeah, he he got his um his certificate for giving marriages off of like a website. Yeah, it's it, the other thing is like I don't understand how like maniacal he gets or like like even if this is your plan, right? Like okay, that doesn't make any sense. How he is just so like casual and cavalier about people dying. Dying, yeah, like he's like people die and he's like yes, good, good. yes, and like he's he's so maniacal about stuff and like laughing and 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 you know being all evil and shit. And it's like what? Like what were you going for? And also, speaking of it being a letdown when Pablo takes his mask off, like. His appearance is supposedly so horrifying that, like, people keep dying from heart failure when they see him. And he's just a little gaunt. There's no disfigurement. Um, there's no, like, sign of leprosy beyond pale-colored skin. Yeah. Like, he's not, like, missing a nose or some shit. Like, no. he's just a pale, thin dude. Like, I dated a guy like that in high school. Like... <laughs> You'll be fine, Pablo. Yeah, I, I I, mean, I'm sure, like, there's bigger problems for Pablo, maybe underneath the rest of that black outfit, <laughs> and, like, you know, issues with, like, contagion and, and stuff like that, whatever. I'm just saying, like, Dr. Montez, you're a doctor, and you died from seeing a guy with leprosy, like, mild leprosy? Yeah. Like, you died from seeing a guy... Who, like, had a disease that made him go pale. Like, what? Yeah. It Yeah, it's such a letdown, and doesn't really make sense. And, like, why couldn't... Like, I get it. I get it. Lepers are socially stigmatized to the extent that the word leper means socially stigmatized person in, like, a uh, turn of phrase. Yeah. Right? But it's still wild to me. That, like, this seemed more reasonable than just coming back and being like, hey, so, fucked up. Pablo has leprosy. Um, sorry, everybody. Yeah. Yep. <sighs> so, I, I do think that the second half succeeds in that gothic flavor. Mm -hmm. The idea of a ghost haunting the home, crying and wailing, this tortured soul... Um, who's not actually dead, he's just diseased. Mm -hmm. Like, that's right on the money mm -hmm. gothic. But Ben, uh, is this horror? I think so. Like, okay. like, it's a little jarring to go back to 1935 yeah. and see movies, like, made as roughly as these. But I think the key thing to compare this to is Poverty Row movies, right? You know, this came out what, around the time of, like, Crime of Dr. Crespi in the United States? Yeah. Like, this might be a little 
haphazard and slapdash, and it might tell more than it shows, and all of that. It might be a little cheap, but, like, it's clear what they're going for here. And I think what they're going for here is horror, because all of the influences cinematically that they're pulling from are from horror movies. You know, it's just a little weak sauce, and maybe a big part of that might just be the bad subtitles that we were, like, Mm -hmm. having to force our way through, right? But, I mean, given the body count... Yeah. And I think um, the budget probably limited things, too. Because, like I said, I wanted more. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, for example, like, you know, you have mysterious man Pablo playing the violin, just just seeing his shadow. It's exactly the same song that you hear every time. But I thought maybe, wouldn't it be cool if it was, like, in a minor key... Or, like, jumbled a little bit because leprosy is affecting his fingers. Like, something like that. Maybe more disfigurement. Yeah. Something more. Yeah, I think not a lot of... Even with the low budget, I think more attention was being paid to the look of this movie with the cinematography and the set design and the costume design than with anything else in this movie. And I think that's its big problem. So let's move on to ranking. Mm-hmm. Where were you looking? So when I was looking to find a spot, um, there were two movies that came to mind kind of immediately. Okay. The first of which was Song at Midnight, which is our other like foreign Phantom of the Opera ripoff. I also was drawn to, to Song at Midnight. It's at 124. It was made in 1937. Wow. I think Song at Midnight is better than this. I um, agree. Because it's got... Better use of the music, it has better makeup, um, it kind of goes for the spookiness a lot more. Yeah, and the unique, tragic horror mm-hmm. of Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense because they're just doing an adaptation, not taking inspiration from that and many other things. So, yeah, I, I agree. I had that as my ceiling, actually. So I kept looking down from there and spotted La Llorona at number 133. Yeah. And I think La Llorona might be better than this. Not necessarily in the sense of its filmmaking quality, because La Llorona's pretty rough. Yeah. And this has really good, like, set design and cinematography and all that. But La Llorona ultimately does a lot more with what it's doing than this movie does. I would agree. So it's, like, the first Mexican horror film. Mm -hmm. So there are parts where you're like, is this a horror movie? But it is a horror movie. By the end, especially. I think it's interesting how comparable they are. But I would agree that, like, you know, it's definitely a question of whether um, El Mysterio del Rostro Palido is better or worse than La Llorona. Yeah, I mean, the thing about La Llorona, I mean, maybe there are some subtleties in this movie, again, that we're losing because we don't speak Spanish. Yeah. But La Llorona was using its ghost story to tackle you know, essentially issues of, like, class and race in Mexico. Yeah. Right? That's very true. This movie, I mean... That was flavor. Leprosy's a plot point, right? This movie isn't really talking about, like, oh, we should treat people with leprosy better because they aren't monsters, they're just people, right? Nothing of that really comes up. Like, all the characters still reject Pablo when they find out he's a leper, and then, like, his dad dies, and he's like, well, I guess I should be dead. 
and he kills himself, and then that's the end of the story, right? Yeah. So, so like, there's nothing really here being said in terms of, like, oh, we should, like, feel for these people, you know? Um, so it's not really doing anything with its story, other than using it as an excuse to do a Phantom of the Opera riff. So I think this isn't as good as La Llorona. Okay, Looking yeah. beneath La Llorona, I think there's a lot of movies here that are sort of comparable, in quality, like Night of Terror and Sex Maniac and Dr. Crespi and Spider-Woman Strikes Back. Uh, but my eyes kind of stopped at The Monster Walks at 141, which is more boring than this movie. Yeah. My floor was at The Crime of Dr. Crespi mm. at 137. Um, because I was thinking about how entertaining Eric von Stroheim is. Right. Compared to... How, like, entertaining and kind of maniacal, like, I think you hit the nail on the head with the word maniacal, that Carlos Villarreal is. Right. My only thing here, like, I think it's better than The Monster Walks for sure, where I get tripped up is Scared to Death, which is a terrible <laughs> fucking movie, but is really entertaining for how, like, completely off the wall it is, and I'm not sure if that means, like... I don't know how much how much how, how many points do you give for the fact that a movie like Scared to Death, which feels like it was written by aliens who only have like a <laughs> slight understanding of how humans, much less storytelling, works, like that's so much more entertaining than this movie, which is kind of just a lot of tropes we've seen in other places, but this time in Spanish. I think also in here is uh, the Mad Ghoul mm -hmm. at one thirty eight. Um, and that stars George Zuko. And, um... Very comparable to Carlos Villarreal's. Yeah, I feel like Villarreal's here is, uh, doing, like, his Zuko. Right. You know, we, like, they're, they've both, like, done, um, the lead in a horror movie, and now they're being relegated to, like, the dad scientist. He goes crazy. Right. So that's kind of interesting. Honestly, though, I think... I love how exciting and unexpected <laughs> that scared to death is just mm. how like off the wall it is and i'm also thinking about like how that has like a face in the window right as sure well. yeah and that just fucking works yeah despite how hilarious it is right compared to this movie so i'm going to suggest below scared to death but above the monster walks all right let's do it cool Entering the list at the new number 141, El Mysterio del Rostro Palado from 1935, directed by Juan Bastillo Oro. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, feel free to drop us a line through our appeals box there. You can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and the podcasting app of your choice if you subscribe to our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on one of those services, or by sharing the show on social media. You can also be a big help if you can head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and kick in as little as a dollar a month to help keep the show going 
at higher levels, like $5 and $10, you get access to some exclusive bonus content. So that's patreon.com slash podcast if you've got sort of the means and the will and the way to, uh, yeah, help support the show. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week... Are we continuing our Mexican vacation? We are. Uh, we are jumping forward in time to 1950, and the next Mexican horror film, El Hombre Sin Rostro, or The Man Without a Face, directed by Juan Bastillo Oro. He's going back to the face well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Same here. See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.